Um, Philippians chapter 2. I always find it entertaining um, when my wife and I come back from a night out and, uh, and talk to the babysitter who's been watching our kids. And uh, just to kind of get the down low. What, what happened while we were gone? My son is freaking out right now. Oh, what happened to the last babysitter? What did she say? What are my kids like when I'm not there? I really want to know. That's, that's significant. As a parent, you, you can't help it. I, I mean, I know I can get my kids to behave, and, and you fall into routines and habits and ways of doing things that you know will kind of work out for them to obey and do the right thing. Um, but that's not the goal of parenting, is it? To have kids who do the right thing when we're there hovering over them. We don't want kids that just do the right thing. We want kids that are the right kind of people, right? What, what drives them? What's, do they have that internal motivation to do what's right, even when there's no threat of discipline, even when I'm kind of out of the picture? When they feel like they can do whatever they want and kind of get away with it, what do they do then? So that feedback from the babysitter is always kind of a, a glimpse behind the curtain, uh, a chance to see um, maybe what I can't see when I'm there. Uh, is my training of them getting beyond just kind of blunt force coercion and, and getting to actual heart-level transforming of character? That's what Paul's after in this passage um, that we're going to look at this morning. He's, he's telling the Philippian church, I want to see that heart-level obedience. Obedience not only when I'm present with you, but even more when I'm gone. He's striving after this in them, for them. And so he gives them these three basic commands here in Philippians 2, followed by three motivators. And the reason, or three, three reasons why they should do these things that he's commanding with hope that they won't just be doing these things when he's watching. It's not just to impress him, but they have this this deep heart-level motivation behind it. So let me read this passage for us, and then we'll take a a closer look. So Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine like lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace. Lord, even when we are weak and feel completely out of control, um, Lord, we rejoice that your power is made perfect in our weaknesses, that your grace shows through, that you have the ability to use um, frail and broken humans for the display of your glory. So God, I ask that you would do that now. Lord, that you would take 
um, my words and make them true to your word. God, that uh, as a people we would gather together and see your truth and find hope and joy there, Lord, that we might be those kinds of people driven by uh, that inner heart motivation with roots down deep in the glory of your gospel, living lives worthy of that gospel. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So if we were to take this passage and look at it too narrowly, it would be easy for us to miss the the broader context, and, and I don't want to do that. We can't just leave behind all that he has been saying. No, no verse of the Bible stands on its own. Um, it's a wonderful thing to memorize scripture. It's a dangerous thing to take one little piece of scripture that we know well and forget what's above it and below it. Um, that's what gives it its fullest meaning. So um, back in chapter 1, verse 27, is where Paul kind of makes this shift. He's been telling about his own life, his own circumstances. Now he's, he's beginning to... Um, command them, teach them, admonish them as the church. And this focus that he's been on since that point is is this idea of unity in the church, that they would be striving together side by side. They'd be standing firm in one spirit. He calls them to do nothing out of selfish ambition, but to uh, consider others more significant than yourselves, pointing to the humility of Christ, who is our great example, saying, have among you, This mind, the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage, but he humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. They're to have that kind of humility, that kind of love for one another and sacrificial love for one another as they strive for this unity in the church. And so as he says that he wants to see them obeying, That's what he has in mind. That's what he's kind of building on top of. That's what's behind it. And these three commands to follow here in these verses. Verse 12, work out your own salvation. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. Um, Each of those is just kind of reiterating what he's already said. He's building upon it. Um, It's this idea of us living together in, in real, meaningful, deep communion and fellowship striving together and so the commands here I think aren't really a whole lot of new Um, I think the focus is the motivation that that Paul is saying "I, I want you to be doing this from that internal heart level motivation this personal drive causing you to live this way not only when I'm watching but but even more when I'm gone The first motivation that he wants to instill in them is because God is for us. He says, work out your own salvation for because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Confusing statement. And a lot of people get hung up here. What does he he mean by that? Did he just contradict himself? Um, the first thing we need to tackle is what does it mean to work out your salvation? Does that mean that our salvation depends on us? That it's our efforts, our actions, that if if you want to get to heaven, you better get to work because you've got a lot to do. It's our job. 
Get yourself in the place where God will approve of you. A lot of people perceive Christianity that way. Tragically, a lot of people even present Christianity that way. You need to do better. You need to clean up your life. You need to get this fixed. Look at this mess that you're in. Is that what he means when he says, work out your own salvation? Like, get at it. And, and the answer is absolutely not. And, and, and I just want to be abundantly clear on this because Scripture is. We, we don't earn anything from God. We're sinners. We're a wreck. Like, look around, guys. I'm sorry. Um, here we are. Scripture says we all like sheep have gone astray, turned each one to his own way. God created us. He had this perfect setup in the Garden of Eden. He said, this is good and this is how to live and this is what is right and true. And we collectively said, nah, I'm going to go over here. I don't really care what you say. I want to try it my way. Frankly, I want to be God. And having rebelled against and disrespected that God, who is infinitely worthy of all of our honor and submission, having broken his perfect law, which is the expression of his perfect character, we deserve hell, rightfully. All of us. And, and there's nothing, nothing you can do to change that. Well, what can a murderer do to undo his crime? No good living, no attempt to impress God ever gets us back on his good side. It's absolutely hopeless. And that leads us to the very heart of what this book is about. All of it, start to finish. It's one great story of how we as humans are absolutely doomed. No hope of saving ourselves. This, this train wreck of bad decisions upon bad decisions. Seeking after all the wrong things that never satisfy. Cutting ourselves off further and further from the God that we truly need. And how God himself made a way. Not, not that we could somehow climb up to him, but he came down to us. And that plan laid out and prophesied through the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, it's all pointing forward to that, comes into action that first Christmas. Jesus, God himself, came to earth, born as a human. He descended to be part of his creation lived that perfect life of obedience to God that we could never have lived and died on the cross, there taking on himself the punishment that we deserved. Saying, I've got this. Not, okay, you can escape hell if you work hard enough, but to say it's done. I did it for you. That's why Ephesians 2.8 it says, by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God that no one can boast. It's the only way to be made right with God is by his grace, his generous gift. And through faith. Faith is the opposite of works. Faith is the opposite of trying. It's giving up. It's saying, okay, I can't do it. I need help. I'm going to trust in Christ to do what I never could have done. That's it. So when Paul says, work out your salvation, he's not undoing the entire rest of the Bible. He's not contradicting that. It cannot mean that your salvation depends on you. 
As we dig a little bit deeper, that word there is actually fairly clear. Um, the word work out in the Greek, it, it means to, to bring it to fulfillment, to, to bring it to completion, to let it have its, its full effect. Remember, who's this letter addressed to? We look back to the, the beginning of the letter. Paul introduces himself, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. He's talking to believers. He's talking to those who have trusted in Christ, who have been saved, who have experienced that grace of God in Philippi. And he's saying, to you who have been saved, who know that grace, work that out. Work it, letting that have its full effect in you. Bringing it to completion. It's very, very similar to 127 where this section started where Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Look at this amazing thing that God has done for you. Now live in a way that reflects that. A life that's fitting for that. Now, I just want to point out, we need to take this verse seriously. He is calling us to work. He's calling for effort. He's commanding us to exert energy and effort and work toward forming and shaping our lives in, in proper response to the fact that we have been saved, but we can't miss the effort that he's calling for. There have been movements throughout the history of Christianity um, where people have said, no, 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 just trust God. Just let go. It, what, what you need for holiness is not to strive and to work. What you need is what they would call the higher life. You just need a, a, a richer experience of the Holy Spirit, and then your life will just kind of magically transform. Just, just let God do it. And it's this kind of mystical experience of God at work, and, and you just need to step back and let it go. But... Here, as in other places in Scripture, Paul says, no, work it out, fight for it. Hebrews says, strive for holiness. 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul uses the language of, of an Olympic-style athlete training. And he says, train yourselves for godliness. Do we live that way? Are, are you fighting for holiness the way an athlete fights for fitness? Organizing my schedule, planning my day, being careful about what I do, where I go, the things I say and eat and think. Are, are we active in that process? Running hard after that goal of a, of a gospel-worthy life. Just to remind ourselves again of the context here, um, this is certainly pointing to the unity of the church cultivating that kind of humility, the kind of humility that Christ had in laying down his life for the good of others, forgiving others, bearing burdens with others, spurring others on toward faith. And the question Paul's asking here is why? What, what motivation would drive that kind of discipline, that kind of diligence, that you would do it with Fear and trembling because it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
So yes, it's about discipline and effort and and striving. It's about deciding. I need God's word. I need more of God's word transforming the way I think. I need to set my alarm and actually get up in the morning and spend time in God's word. I, I need to say no to lust and to greed and to selfish ambition as I see it rising in my heart. I need to retrain the way that my sinful heart operates. It's about identifying and rooting out these sinful habits, but it's not just about that. Our our growing in holiness, our our living that that accurately reflects the goodness of the gospel happens because God works it in us. We're so prone to the extremes. Do you see it? We, We do this so easily. Either it's not my work, it's all about God. I just need to let go and let him do it. Or, it's all about me. I need to pick myself up by the bootstraps. I need to work harder, be strong enough, disciplined enough, focused enough. I better get my nose to the grindstone because this holiness thing, it's my work. And it's neither. It's both working in harmony together and, and they're right here together in this passage. Work at it. Strive at it. Be disciplined and focused. Would you work out your own salvation? Why? Because it's God who does it. Because it's the grace of God that produces these things in you, that that will take your effort and make it happen. It's amazing. It's God who works in you, both to will and to act. So, uh, I mean, in one sense, yeah, we've got nothing. Look at Ezekiel 36, 26. I love this. The Lord says, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God did that. He started it in us, and he's the one who's going to complete it. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it through to completion as you strive and work and struggle forward toward it. They're not mutually exclusive. But remember here, Paul's goal is not to explain the dynamics of our work versus God's power at work. His goal here is motivation to encourage them to continue on. Keep working, keep striving. So catch the logic here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you. Fear and trembling is the language of of honor and ultimate respect. That's what happens when God shows up. There is fear and trembling. That's the language of weakness and humility. So we gotta be humbled and in awe of the fact that God Almighty is at work within us, that he has removed the heart of stone from us, that he's given us a heart that's soft toward him, that he is working in us obedience. And and that fear and trembling and awe and wonder that God has begun this and is doing it should just drive us to give every human effort we can to partner with God in our sanctification. Not our salvation, we're saved by grace through faith, but our sanctification, our growing in that, is this teamwork between us and God. And so to sit back and say, God will do it, 
I'm just going to wait over here until it's done. That's ignorant of how growth and holiness really works. It fails to take responsibility for the commands that God has given us like this one here. Work it out. But to act as though it all depends on me, to, to charge forward in my own strength, with my own confidence and my hope in myself is, is just arrogant and foolishness. And it's equally ignorant of how growth in holiness works. And so we strive and work toward growing in holiness, employing all of our strength and effort, understanding our weakness, and just in awe and wonder that it's God who's doing this and that it's him who will prevail over the sin in our lives, and in that, he gets the glory. That's our motivation. God is for us. That's our our hope and our encouragement. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't be discouraged. Don't, Don't let up. Work it out. Work out your own salvation with all your might and with fear and trembling because it's God who is at work in you. Verse 14 then moves to this second motivation. The world needs us. God is for us and the world needs us. Look at verses 14 and 15. Let me read them for us. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The second command here is is this do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's a verse my mom used all the time. Anybody else get that? (laughs) Clean your room, but mom, do all things without grumbling or complaining. And that's not wrong. It's a clear command in this passage. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's important. Grumbling destroys unity. And grumbling is actually a pretty serious attack on God. Anytime you grumble, whether you admit it or not, you're actually making a theological statement. You see that? You're saying either God is not sovereign. He's not, as Ephesians says, working all things according to the pleasure of his will. He clearly messed up. This is not okay. And so I'm going to complain about this. Or we're saying God is not good. Maybe he is in control, but this is evil right here. This is bad that's happening to me. And so I do not believe that, as Romans says, he's working all things to the good of those who love him. Trusting in God's sovereignty and God's goodness, truly believing who God is, that he is who he says he is, makes all grumbling and disputing just evaporate, wouldn't it? If you believe that God is good and trustworthy and in perfect control of your life, why would you grumble? Why would I complain? So that's important. But there's a lot more going on here in this passage than first meets the eye. Um, Paul is quoting here from from two different Old Testament books. And the first one is is fairly curious on how Paul uses it, uh, but it's Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. Listen to these words. They have dealt corruptly with him, that's with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. 
They're a crooked and twisted generation. You see the parallels. Children, blemished, crooked and twisted generation. But, but Paul doesn't use this in a straightforward way. He, he kind of flips this passage on its head. You are children without blemish in contrast to what's in Deuteronomy. And, and you are in the world, which is this crooked and twisted generation, which, which Paul points out to the people he's speaking about. So who is it that Paul's talking about? We need to understand that. We need to understand this verse in Deuteronomy if we're going to understand how Paul's using it. So the book of Deuteronomy was written as Israel uh, is camped just on the opposite side of the Jordan River. They're looking into the land of, of, of Canaan that will become Israel, the promised land, and they're ready to go in. The previous generation, shockingly, the, the generation that, that God brought out of Egypt that saw the, the ten plagues that crossed through the Red Sea, that heard the voice of the Lord at Sinai, that generation is all gone, dead, in the wilderness. Every one of them, they would not enter the promised land. Because when God had first brought them to this point from Sinai, they traveled up to Canaan and the spies went in and what happened? They were discouraged. They saw the strength of the people in Canaan and what did they do? Numbers 14 tells us they grumbled against the Lord. Sound familiar? And the Lord said, therefore you will not enter. You're not going to come into my promised land. You're going to go back and circle and wander 40 years in the desert until this generation has passed away. And it's of that generation now dead that these words are written. They've dealt corruptly with God. They're no longer his children because they're blemished. They're a crooked and twisted generation. And so as Paul writes this to the church in Philippi, he's, he's saying grumbling is serious. This complaining against God is a, is a big deal. This is the reason a whole generation of Israel died in the wilderness, didn't enter the promised land. And God said to them, you are not my children. You're blemished. You're a twisted and crooked generation because of their grumbling. But now Paul is using this same verse and flipping it as he writes it to the church, the new people of God, the new Israel, saying that you are his children without blemish in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. It's striking. He's saying, don't fail like Israel failed. Don't do what Israel did. Don't dispute. Don't grumble. Rather, and here he turns to the second Old Testament quote, if you, like children of God, without blemish, live this way, you, you will shine as lights in the world. The NIV says stars. The, the word literally is lights, but that's how they spoke of the stars, the, the lights in the sky. And so that's undoubtedly the word picture that Paul's painting here. And this quote comes from Daniel 12, um, verses 2 and 3. And, and this passage in Daniel is actually prophecy looking forward to the second coming, looking forward to the final judgment at the end of time. And this is what he says. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's the resurrection from the dead. 
some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. This is really cool. Uh, Paul is, is saying to, to the church in Philippi, if rather than grumbling and complaining, you live in, in humility as a church with these lives worthy of the gospel, in unity together, in, in wisdom turning many away from unrighteousness, they will be a glimpse of heaven. They'll be a glimpse of what eternity will look like. The church today, though obscured by sin and not all that it should be, not all that it one day will be, is still this, this imperfect picture of what heaven will be. As we live together the way we should in, in love and unity together, we shine like lights, like stars. And, and I think there are three basic implications to this word picture. First, stars shine in contrast against the darkness. Paul says that you are in the, in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. We stand out. We look different. The church is not like the world, and that's not just okay, that's good, that's as it should be. And in fact, if our, if our Christianity is something that the world can look at and just say, oh yeah, that's great, that's wonderful, um, we need to stop and ask some hard questions. Because that's not what this says. It's not how Jesus speaks of the church. This fact that we stand out, that we're different, is where our persecution stems from. John 3.19, Jesus said this, or says this of Jesus. This is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That contrast will not make you popular in this world. I remember uh, one of my first jobs, um, working the shovel in the oil field. I grew up in Cold Lake. That's, that's where you went to make money. And uh, just cleaning up little oil spills and cleaning up leases. And uh, I remember coming back just a young, I don't know, I would have been 17 maybe, crew of four older guys. I'm just the I'm just the guy working the goon spoon. And uh, they said, you know what? We've worked a hard day today. Um, let's book till six. Well, it's five o'clock. Yeah, the boss isn't here. We've earned it. Put six on your time card. You put what you want. I'm putting five o'clock. Boy, that job got a lot harder right there. I was not a popular guy. I made some enemies at that point. Um, when the church says... No, sexual perversion is not okay. You can't just do whatever you want with your body. No, God created men and women as different and distinct and unique and, and we don't just flip those roles and change that. No, marriage isn't something you drop out of because it's not fun anymore. No, a baby isn't something disposable because it's inconvenient. It's a life. we simply don't join them in their sinful pursuits, that contrast is not popular. You'll stand out. You're going to look different and, and you're going you're to get some attention that you maybe would rather not have. 
Stars stand out, but stars, lights, don't just shine in contrast to the darkness. They also shine into the darkness, don't they? Nothing else overcomes darkness but light. As the church, as those redeemed by Christ out of the darkness, we then shine the light of Christ back into the darkness. We have this opportunity to say to those trapped and lost in sin, there's a better way. Let me point you to something so much better. You keep trying to find your your joy and your hope in this pit. And there's glory waiting. Christ has offered so much more. Let me show you. There's a God who offers forgiveness for for all who repent and turn to him. There's there's a God who will wipe away all of the, the filth and pain of your sin and offer abundant life, eternal life. And that, I think, blends right into the third implication, this idea of shining like stars, one that maybe we don't think about right away in our culture, but it's navigation. That was obvious to them. That's what stars were for. You're lost, you want to know the right way to go, you you look at the stars. You find your direction, you get a bearing. The world should look into the church and see this is the way to God. This is the way to be reconciled to our creator. This is what it looks like to follow him. That ought to motivate us toward working out our salvation, doing all things without grumbling or complaining. Let's flip that, living a life of joyful obedience, celebrating it, even in trials and persecution, because the Lord is for us, and the world needs us, because we shine like stars in this corrupt and twisted generation. The church is God's plan for reaching the world, And the power of our words ought to be backed up and proven by the example of our lives. Our proclamation of the gospel should should be confirmed and adorned by our living lives worthy of that gospel. As we see a world around us that is sunk in sin and pain and suffering, and let's be honest, a sin and pain and suffering that we know all too well with personal experience, It's a world without God, without hope, walking in opposition to him, desperately needing this Savior. That ought to drive us forward. That ought to motivate us to live as the church, as as lights in this world. So God is for us. The world needs us. And then finally, verses 16 to 18, joy awaits us. Read these Verses for us, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul wants him to obey, even in his absence working out their own salvation because God is for them, doing all things without grumbling or complaining because the world needs them. And then here, holding fast to the word of life because joy awaits them. Holding fast. There's an assumption there. 
This won't be easy. You don't have to hold fast if everything is kind of smooth sailing and comfortable. No, it's when the storm rises and the boat is being tossed to and fro by the waves that you need to hold fast to the rigging of that ship. That's what he's talking about. This is not going to be easy. Holding fast to the word of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives life. Don't let it go. Don't be distracted or pulled off. Day after day, year after year, keeping our eyes fixed on who Christ is, on what he has done, on what he has called us to. Don't don't lose grip on that. And then Paul starts with himself as as this example. So that in the day of Christ, that's, that's the final judgment. That's the day when we are tested. How we spent our time, our money, our energy is laid bare and, and each one is rewarded according to what he has done. In that day, Paul says, I may be proud that I didn't run in vain. I didn't labor in vain. I might have grounds for boasting. And, and I think if we understand Paul, he's boasting in Christ's work through him. Paul says, I want to see you, church, holding fast to the word of life so that I know my life wasn't wasted. And when I stand before God on the day of judgment, your life might be this glorious testimony to my faithful service. Reminds me of what Paul had written years before this to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 3. He says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. He's talking about his work as an apostle, um, founding the church on the foundation of the gospel. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. It'll be shown for what it is. For the day, that's the day of judgment, will disclose it. Because it'll be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So remember, he's talking about believers. We've got to draw kind of two distinctions here. We all deserve hell in and of ourselves. If we've trusted in Christ, by the grace of God, been saved, we're we're bound for glory. There's no question about that. It doesn't hinge on our works. But there is yet a judgment for believers, a testing of our work and our service, And there's reward for that, for those that have served well, for those who have given themselves to the right kinds of work in the kingdom of God. And here Paul uses these two uh, categories. There are those who are building with wood, hay, and straw. Well, the metaphor he uses for the testing is fire. How do wood, hay, and straw handle fire? Not well. There's nothing left. These people had spent their lives on things that are going to perish and things that just won't last. The other category is gold, silver, and precious stones. They're refined by fire. 
And in Philippians, Paul is saying that the evidence of his work among them, his service in the church, will be proved to be gold, silver, and precious stones that that he's going to gain a reward if they hold fast to the gospel. Because that will show that his work among them was building with the gospel. He's not spending his time on earthly things. He wasn't building people who followed him. He wasn't building people who were excited about getting rich or having a better life or anything else. He's he's building a church on the gospel. And he's so focused on that goal, on serving the church and building something that that is built around what Christ has done and the church that Christ is building He's ready to give his life to it, absolutely and completely. And this isn't even theoretical. He's writing this letter from prison. He is is in prison right now because of his preaching of Jesus Christ. And there's a good chance he's going to be beheaded for it. And he says, that's okay. I'm all right with that. Even if my life is poured out as a drink offering. See the picture? My, My life poured out on the ground gone, unrecoverable. Even if my life is poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, that would be okay. The, the, the drink offering uh, in the Old Testament was just an addition. It was, a, it was a flourish that was added to the sacrificial offering. And he's saying, it's your faith. It's the, it's the church is the main offering. And I'm okay if my life is just this little poured out for the sake of the church. That's good. I would be glad and rejoice. Stop and ask the question, how can he say that? Even if my life is poured out, I will be glad and rejoice. Paul, how can you say that? He can say it because he has his eyes on some greater joy, right? I love my 2006 Honda Odyssey. And... And if I were to crash that in an accident and it was a write-off, that would be a loss. That would be a sad thing. I would not be glad and rejoice. But if I were to lose my 2006 Honda Odyssey in a trade for a 2019 Lamborghini, I would be glad. I could rejoice in that. My kids would have to ride with Beth, but I would be okay with that. (laughs) Ezra can drive. You can ride with me. (laughs) Oh, I see how it is. I will, yeah. I can be glad and rejoice because I've gotten something better. Yes, there's a loss. The Odyssey's gone, but I'm okay with that because there's something of greater joy now in my possession. That's what Paul's saying. That's how he can say, I'm glad and I rejoice. Even though my life is gone, I have something better. But Paul, what's better than life itself? When you give up life, what do you give up? Everything, relationships, anything you've earned, every, any reputation you've had, it's gone when you give up your life. What could Paul be talking about in saying that this is better than even life itself? It's eternity. It's eternal reward. Jesus said, Matthew 6, 19, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Oh, these things on earth are so temporary and so fragile. Even my 2006 Honda Odyssey is starting to rust and fall apart, believe it or not. 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's where Paul's heart is. I don't care about these things. I don't care about this life. I'm about eternity. I'm about treasure in heaven. That's where my joy is placed. Work hard, Jesus says. Store up for yourself. How do you, how do you store up treasure on earth? You go to work. Right? You break your back. You, you save up. You purchase things that are of great value. You make wise investments and you store up treasure on earth. How do you store up treasure in heaven? You, you work. You make wise decisions. You invest in, in places where there's going to be a good heavenly return. And again, it's not salvation. This is how we spend our lives as those who have been saved. We don't talk a whole lot about this, but Jesus does often. Paul says to the believers in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Those who serve the Lord faithfully, who give themselves to the Lord, will receive a reward. 1 Corinthians 15.58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's a reward. There's treasure ahead. Paul says, I will rejoice and be glad if my life is poured out as a drink offering because I know it will not be in vain because it's labor in the Lord, because it's placed in the right place. And in verse 18, he invites them to join him in his rejoicing. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Implication? As you join me in giving your lives to the service of Christ in his church. As you strive together for for unity and love and growth, as you pour into other believers, as you proclaim the gospel to those who need to hear it. I love the contrast against those middle verses. This gladness and joy is the antidote to all grumbling and disputing, isn't it? I can endure all things without grumbling or disputing if I truly believe that my suffering in humility following after the example of Christ, giving up my rights for the unity of the church, shining like stars in this world will be abundantly rewarded. In fact, I can be glad about it. Bring it on. Doesn't mean it's fun. Doesn't mean it's easy. But he means I know in the end it will be worth it. So what are you giving your life for? Where do you spend your life? Where are you storing up treasure? Are you laboring for treasure in heaven? Are you living this life with that kind of humility leading to this gospel-worthy unity in the church driven by these kinds of gospel motivations? pouring out your life 
in love and service for others, to encourage others in their faith, reaching out to call others, come and see. Oh, there's so much more to this short life than than, than these futile, failing pleasures of sin. There is a glorious God who calls us to come and delight in him. Come and see. God is for you. The world needs you and joy awaits you. Oh, we ought to be so motivated in these things and strive after them with all that we have.